Hey everybody, welcome to the Rohani Resources Podcast. I know a bunch of you have been clamoring for me to get my butt out of the field and quit playing in the dirt and come in and sit in front of a computer and start doing some podcasts and building some videos. So, well, uh, with all this COVID-19 crap going on and uh, some of the weather we got going on right now, well, guess what? That's that's literally what I'm going to be doing because I've got the time. So, uh, we're going to kick off some podcasts and some other interesting discussions uh, about some of the videos and some of the other stuff that's been going on with me lately, what Row Hunting Resources is doing out here in Kansas, and some of the other things that I've been thinking about. So, yeah, it should be fun over these next several weeks and into the rest of 2020 if we can get ourselves through all this coronavirus crap. But, you know, if I'm going to start in heavy on some podcast episodes. Really, I can't do it properly without at least starting with one of the guys that got me started in the podcast world. And of course, that is uh, with Jay Scott of Jay Scott Outdoors. So a little while ago, we did a podcast and we did another marathon discussion about turkey hunting and, and all things turkey. And he posted this series on his podcast oh about a week or so ago and he split it up into a four-part series each about an hour long but we were going to cross uh, promote this so I have it here as well and I'm going to add a little bit tidbits uh, here and there throughout the discussion but I've gone ahead and I've I know some of you like those longer discussions so I've gone ahead and made it a two-hour block so each of these, it's going to be a two-part series, each of them about a two-hour block. So for those that like an extended discussion, here you go. But if it doesn't work for you in that format and you would rather have them in you know, bite-sized one-hour blocks, then by all means, go over and support Jay Scott Outdoors in his podcast because it's awesome. But as usual, we had another great discussion, and I think this one is even more in-depth than the original discussion we did oh geez several years ago now on his podcast and that ended up being I think a seven part series so in this first episode we start off we're going to answer a few phone calls and some Instagram questions from some of Jay's followers then we're going to get into scouting and patterning hunting where the birds want to be versus where you want them to be we're going to rant a little bit on this COVID-19 garbage that's been going on. We're going to have a bunch of discussion on hunting Merriam's turkeys, roosting behavior, and hunting near roosts. We're going to talk about the meaning of turkey head color. That question comes up all the time, so we dive into it again on this podcast. We're going to talk about hunting in crappy weather, locating birds, and getting birds to shot gobble on the roost. And then we're going to wrap this one up with a comprehensive discussion on decoy setups. So, if those topics seem interesting to you, well, buckle up because we are going to dive in and have a fun and in-depth discussion on all of these. Okay, uh, Chris, uh, we've got Jim here, my buddy from Colorado. He is actually out in Texas headed to go turkey hunting, and he had some questions. Jim, what do you got? Well... I'm pretty new to the turkey game, as you know. Um, my first question, I was out this morning 
just doing some scouting, and this is real elementary, but do Toms yelp and cluck, or do they just gobble? So Toms, yes, can yelp and, and, and cluck and make other hen-type sounds for sure. But more than likely, in Texas, I would think that most of what you're going to be hearing is gobblers gobbling. But certainly, they can cluck and they can basically make all of the sounds. It's going to sound a little deeper. It's not going to sound quite as sweet. Um, but if, if you heard turkeys but didn't hear gobbling, I would venture to maybe say they should be gobbling. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I would. It would not surprise me that they should be gobbling. However, all, and the other thing too, keep in mind. Oftentimes, if you have groups of jakes, jakes will yelp and clock and cut, they'll they'll do all the same quote unquote. But people say hen sounds, but they're just the basic vocalizations. Like Jay said, that they will absolutely do all those sounds. But if if you are looking at birds strutting or they're up on a limb strutting, you're not hearing any gobbles, but you hear a whole bunch of yelps and cluts and everything else, you might be hearing those jakes. Did you see them, Jim? Yeah, yeah, I saw hens and um, toms um, kind of in different areas. I mean, I was actually, I got in between them finally, but I left uh, my blind. And I guess that was my next question is, how do you know when to bail on your blind and, and go after them versus, you know, holding tight? Well, I think the, <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the hundred dollar question, but um, first I would ask, did you actually have them gobbling? You heard birds gobbling this morning and then you were in your blind and then you had kind of a group separate and then you didn't, you, you said, well, shoot, now what do I do? Is that kind of what happened? Well, I was in my, uh, I was in the blind. I had a couple decoys in front of me and I did hear him gobbling. And then, um, I mean, that's a whole nother question I have is like how, like I'm used to elk hunting and giving it some time, you know, for them to come in after your last call, how long, you know, do you wait on them? And so I waited an hour without hearing much more action but that could sound like they were gobbling further away from me. So that's when I got out of the blind and started, you know, kind of moving after them. So that's when I finally caught up to them. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things you, you hear about is, well, make a few calls and then wait and they should come to you. And yes, I agree that that can work, but a lot of times, and I'll let Chris kind of go into this, if you're not actually kind of in a conversation with them, they're going to lose interest really fast. Now, you're you're hunting in Texas, so you're dealing with Rios, um, you know, and I would say Rios and Merriams, they have a little bit different level of intensity or how they want to engage in a conversation, but they can lose interest very, very quickly. So I think getting out of the blind and repositioning on the birds is a lot of times a good thing, but you also, in my mind, have to kind of figure out which direction they are going and you almost want to loop all the way around them and get in front of them because it, it, I have found it's very difficult to follow birds. One, they're going to see you. Two, it's hard to have birds retrace their steps and come back to you. Typically, they're on a route somewhere. They're going to a strut zone. They're going to a feeding area. They're going to water. They're going somewhere. 
So just like elk, it's it's hard to follow elk into dark timber or it's hard right. to follow elk through pinion juniper. You almost want to get out to the side of them and parallel them, figure out where they're going. And it may be a function of wherever they're going. They're going to spend quite a bit of time there. You just got to get kind of out in front of them and then work your way back into them. The hard part with turkeys even more than elk is their eyesight is way better uh, and it's very hard to move on turkeys. The ones you moved in on, did they end up seeing you? Well, the uh, the hen did because I just had to basically forfeit myself to her in order to get to where the, the toms were. And, and then did you make it to the toms or, or what happened? Yeah, I made it to them and uh, he was going in a favorable direction and that's when I kind of I actually thought I was going to be like in a perfect spot to cut them off so I quickly put my decoys out there and waited on them and it just kind of fizzled out like I lost track of them and yeah it just all kind of fizzled out Chris what do you got well I think the the best thing you yeah now the one thing that you said there was right on the money is the birds are going to be doing something. They, they're going somewhere, and they have a loop. They, they, they have a reason of where they're going. So, And with Rios, it's, it's not uncommon for them to roost in one spot, fly down, head, start heading to a feeding spot, and then go to a different spot, maybe get water, and then go to a different spot for their midday loafing area, and then start to work their way back to the roost. And so they, they have this cycle of movement on the landscape. And so, especially now, we're, we're st- we are still kind of in that, we're, and I imagine Texas being the same way, the birds are still in a kind of an early pattern. So they're going to be grouped up a little bit more, and you might end up having a lot of those gobblers that are just kind of, they, they still might be multiple gobblers in a group, and they might be still locked down, generally speaking, with a particular group of hens and not wanting to go and venture off on, in crews on their own so the question is that your question was is how do you know how so how do you know when you just bail on your blind and go follow them versus staying put and i think jay what you said is is important you need to try to figure out what their pattern is what their loop is if you are set up with your ground blind in that loop that they want to be in especially if you are if your ground blind is in a place where they generally like to hang out and loaf for the day then sometimes the best thing you can do is because of the pot, the potential of getting busted by being seen while you're moving or whatever sometimes I will just absolutely stay put in that ground blind I might have two three five six or more hours of just nothingness and then all of a sudden here they come because this is where they want to spend the rest of the day and now I'm I'm literally in ground zero of where those birds want to be. However, if your setup is outside of that loop, go chase them because they might not be there until literally, you know, most states that I know of, the, you know, in the evening, if you can hunt until dark, it's, you know, sunset. Well, they may not fly up until after sunset. So sometimes if you're outside that loop, you're, you've got no choice but to, to pick up and just go and follow them. So, Make sure. How many days have you been hunting so far down there? Two. Okay. Have they had a consistent pattern that you've been able to see so far? 
Um, in the two mornings, yes, I've seen them in the same uh, spot, but I haven't, I haven't been able to see exactly where they're going. Okay, one time but, I but, got one time I got busted, and the second time, um, like I said, it just kind of fizzled out, and I couldn't tell where he was going. There was two right, uh, golfers working together. Were they moving off in the same general direction both days? Yeah, kind of heading back down towards like this little creek bottom. Okay, then tomorrow, then tomorrow, maybe the best bet for you this afternoon is to go over, to, you know, where they were roosted, and then go a couple hundred yards away, maybe either if you can figure out where they're flying out, that's awesome. But if you can't, go a couple hundred yards in the direction in that they were headed. You don't have to have it perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect, but if, as long as, like Jay said, if you can get in front of them, it, it, even if you're left or right of their actual path, but you're in that general vicinity, it's a lot easier to get them. It's a lot easier to pull them left or right so they just kind of veer off to the left and, and come into your setup than it is to pull them 180 degrees away. So if you can figure out for tomorrow morning where you want your ground blind that may be your best play for this afternoon. But, yes, if, if you know that you're in that loop or in that area where they seem to be spending the bulk of the middle part of the day, sometimes just sitting quiet, or I mean, you can sit in quiet or you can just call, but staying put in that blind for a few hours can pay dividends. But you've got to be in that zone. You've got to be where the turkeys want to be until we're talking later in the season when you have gobblers out cruising by themselves. But right now I think you're going to really need – your best bet is to figure out what their pattern is and then get your ground blind and your setup in front of them or where they generally want to be. Jim, are, yeah, yeah, are, you, uh, are you going to a different property now or going back to hunt the same one? No, I'm going to a different property uh, tonight, and I'll hunt that tonight and tomorrow morning. That's going to be much further south. And then, uh, so season doesn't actually open up until April 1st up in uh, Central Texas where we're staying. Okay. So that's oh. why I've been, I've been pretty much scouting the last two days trying to figure them out. And then um, so I'll be heading back there tomorrow afternoon to Central Texas, and I'm going down south today where the season's open to hunt a, a friend's ranch. Okay, so one one thing I might add when you go back to that property, do you have a pretty good sense of the trees that those gobblers were roosted in? No, I haven't figured that out yet. I mean, I didn't even know how to. I mean, I would, from what I read, it looks like you got to find if you're not actually seeing them in the tree, you got to look for their droppings. Well, did you hear them? Right? Did you hear them before light this morning? Did you hear where they were gobbling? No, or? no, I didn't hear them gobbling. And um, I was out at about. 630 which is about you know a half hour before daylight and uh didn't hear him gobbling actually until it was probably 730 is there a chance that those birds is it is there a chance that those birds are actually not um roosting on the property and they're roosting somewhere else and you heard them because then they came on the property or does the property owner say that they live right there it's a pretty big property. He's got 180 acres, so um, it's just a matter, I think, of where I was set up in okay. the morning that I didn't hear him. One thing I would say, and Chris, you can weigh in, is is Jim, if you if you 
had a pretty good sense this morning of where those gobblers was there one how many gobblers two okay were they kind of actually two different groups but the two that i was on and two i saw were they were they kind of in the same area in other words do you now have an epicenter if you will of if you were just going to go right back where they liked to be where you saw them they looked content would that be where you are going to start? Yeah, exactly. That's where I would try and be set up in the, uh, the next morning. Okay. And is there any, can you tell where they're watering? Is it dry down there or is it is it wet or what's the story? No, they got a lot of choices for water. There's a couple ponds. There's a creek bottom. Okay. Where does you the know, landowner like a- say that they... Does the landowner have any idea where the birds are actually sleeping and roosting and where he would say, I hear them at dark here and I hear them at when the sun is coming up here? No, he's not a hunter, unfortunately. But um, I do have some trail camera pictures from the evening. So, like, there's, you know, think of a, you know, like he's grazing cattle in there and, so he's got some good open fields, a couple pastures, and then there's a creek bottom. So I've seen them in the evening, kind of closer to the creek bottom, and there's some beautiful big old trees in there. So I'm sure that's where they're uh, roosting, is somewhere along the creek. And then heading up into the field, that's where I've been seeing them, is kind of at the top of this one field, you know, by 8 a.m. or so. Chris, bingo went off in my head. If he's if he's got a field where he's been seeing them, if it were me and you weigh in on this, I would probably go set my blind and set my decoys where I think they want to go, regardless of where they're yeah. roosting, because that is a variable that you, it's not a given because you, you've only seen them there one time, but if you've seen them there multiple times, twice. I, okay, yeah. twice, I would go set there and wait for them. And, you know, depending on if you have pretty good decoys, what you're, you know, what you're using, I would go set up, get the ground blind where it's, if it's possible to kind of get it kind of hidden, um, and then go sit and just wait. What would you do, Chris? Yeah, no, absolutely. You need to be where they want to be. Unless you are an exceptional caller, and I mean, just absolute exceptional caller, and you are you want to get into a battle of calling the entire flock to you? Um, no, I, I think, especially given it's early, given that these they're still clocked up, um, I it, absolutely get out where you've seen them, where you think they want to be, and just stay put and, and evaluate. Your your scouting now is important. The biggest thing that you can do is figure out where do they want to go. How are, where are they going? Where are you seeing them? Where are they moving? Um, yeah, you want to make sure your setup come opening day is in the path of where they want to be. Yep, love it. And then Jim... And I haven't seen them flocked up either. This is like I've been seeing just like ones and twos. Gobblers together or or a gobbler with a Yeah, two gobblers, like the one group, I've seen them twice now, two mornings, two gobblers together, and then the hens I'm seeing are just singles. Interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I do know Texas starts way earlier than the rest of, you know, like out here. Um, it's very possible that they're kind of already broke up, but I would be shocked that, that Chris, I'm surprised that he's not seeing a wagon train, you know, of hens with, with a gobbler yeah. following behind. 
Um, but, but I still go back to, you've got to go with what you know. And if you've seen them in the same spot twice, that's where I would start. And then on the new property you're going to today, um, you know, not going to a property completely fresh, is your friend going to be able to be there and kind of show you around or are you going completely blind? No, no, I'm going to have a guy with me that, They've had some good success already this year, so he's got it kind of dialed in. So that's why I'm excited to do that, to kind of learn the ropes a little bit from the behavior and see how he reacts. And right. He, you know, so. do, now, do you have a coyote howler with you, or do you have an elk diaphragm that you can make a coyote you know, howl with? with? Um, I, I just have a – I'm kind of ill-prepared. I have a couple diaphragm calls with me. I think they sound pretty decent, but um, I guess my point is if if you trying to get them to shock gobble. Yeah, if you howl like a coyote when it's dark, um, you know, right after they fly up when it's pretty dark, or in the morning, if you coyote howl, you're probably going to get them to answer. The one thing you have to watch is if they're too close to you. Uh, or if you're too close to them on the roost, sometimes they won't shock or they might even shock. But now you've sounded like a coyote that's under their tree and they're going to run off. But if you're, you know, a quarter, half, you know, even three quarters of a mile away, I'm constantly howling with my coyote howler to try and get them to strike. So then I can hear them and move over closer to them. So when you go back to the property you were hunting this morning, I would go set up where you think they're going to be. And see how that goes uh, and see if you hear anything on the limb and then try and figure out where they're roosting because then you have an area of where they want to be and where they're roosting. And then a lot of times you can figure out that path in between and that's where you'll want to be set up. Uh, Maybe if you don't get them, you know, when you go back tomorrow, you might be able to figure out, okay, not only do I know where they want to be, I know where they're roosting. And then you can figure out if there's a pinch point or some sort of, um, you know, geographic feature that's going to say, hey, they're going to walk right through here. And look, here, here's tons of tracks. So they obviously walk right through this area. That might be another place that you can set up on them. Right. Yeah. And if, and if they're not fired up right now, and if you're not hearing a lot of gobbling and you're not hearing, you may actually want to just have some patience and play the long game and just sit and listen and watch and just, I mean, there's been plenty of seasons where I've sat myself and my friends for our personal hunts or with clients. We've sat in the ground blind all day. And you may, like I said, you may sit there for several hours with nothing, be half falling asleep. And then all of a sudden you hear, you know, either a gobbler strutting or you hear something come up and kick your decoy and you snap awake and you look up and there's, a, there, you know, two gobblers are right there in your decoy spread beating up on your, your decoy. So, um, yeah, if they're not fired up and they're not talking a lot, then you may want to just play the, the long game if you think you're in an area where they want to be. Yeah, I think I have that to my advantage. Hey, I might lose you guys. I'm starting to lose some service. All right, Jim, be safe. Keep us posted. I appreciate your time. All right. Yeah, good luck. Thanks, man. Bye. Yeah, I think that was good. It sounds like he had, I thought he was hunting, but it sounds like he was scouting on one property. Um, But it'll be interesting to see with that little bit of advice, if he can get back in there and kind of get set up where he needs to be. 
it's always fun listening to a question from someone that hasn't done it a lot because it brings me back to, I still feel that same way every day that I turkey hunt. You know, it's almost like we start over. We, we, we gain as much knowledge as we can through experience and, um, but there's always, where do I need to be? Where are they going? I mean, it still comes back to those basic questions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yes. Can you, um, can you get in a battle with those hens and call them in a different direction? You know, I have a YouTube uh, video of one of our hunts out here in Kansas and, you know, the birds were going to fly down and head a different direction. And I knew that. And I just, just laid on the calls and I just, you know, a couple of the comments, you've heard it, especially with ghouls, you know, you get those guys, gals that hunt in Alabama or Mississippi or, you know, Pennsylvania or whatever. And they're like, golly, you guys are calling way too much and too loud. If you can't call turkeys like that. Well, okay. There are times when, yeah, if the birds are going to walk away from you and they're in a big flock, well, guess what? You've got to get the entire flock to either move your way or you've got to sound good enough to where you can entice at least a couple of those gobblers out to move your direction. But if you can set up where they already want to be or where how they you know where they already travel, oh my gosh, yeah, that that is. That's your priority, figuring out where they are going, where they want to be, and get yourself in their path, and your life is a lot easier. Yeah. Guys, uh, I really appreciate you guys tuning in here to the podcast. I've got, obviously, Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. You were just listening to a friend of mine, uh, Jim, from Colorado that was out in Texas, it sounds like he's in Central Texas uh, doing some scouting for a season that starts here April 1st. Was going to make a run. I actually caught him in the vehicle. He had texted me while Chris and I were just starting our intro. Said he had some turkey questions. And uh, I said, hey, let's we'll just call and record it. And hopefully you guys get a little value out of that. Uh, Chris, it's always great having you on the podcast. It's been a while. Uh, what's going on in your world? No, I, I appreciate it. it I'm, I'm always glad when you give me a call. It's fun chatting with you. So, no, my world, brother, is, is uh, trying to deal with this, all this new panic issue about COVID-19 and, and get ready for our turkey season. So the past month has just been a, for me, it's been a mad scramble uh, to get a bunch of our spring food plots in and established and then just get everything just lined up for our hunts that start. Well, now... Uh, our first group just officially asked to postpone their hunt until May. So, um, so now I guess I've, my my first hunt doesn't start until probably April seventh. So it gives me a little bit of breathing room to get a little bit more stuff done. But uh, I love this time of year, man. You you've got to be in the same boat. You're, I mean, you've got Mexico hunts coming up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're scheduled to start April 18th, um, obviously with this whole coronavirus uh, deal going on. Uh, a bunch of my April hunts, a bunch of the guys, you know, said, what are our choices? And I said, well, you know, you can just bump them back to next year. Um, and, you know, that's what a lot of people have done in April. We're still, I've still got a few guys that want to go here in April. Uh, the border is actually open. They are saying, if you look on, you know, Fox, CNN, you name it, it's saying the border's closed. Uh, I have a friend down at the customs. He says it is not closed. U.S. citizens can come and go. Um, you know, and, and every day that might change. 
uh, but right now it's open. You know, we're sitting here at the end of March. Uh, our birds really don't really get going till that mid-April time frame. And, you know, we were scheduled this year probably for our, well, not probably, for our biggest season of, of the amount of hunters and the amount of birds scheduled to harvest. We got a bunch of new properties, you know, and I was super excited. I uh, still am excited, but, um, you know, I've had to juggle a little bit and kind of postpone things, but I'm still hoping our late May and um, all of our, or excuse me, late April and early May uh, to the mid-May uh, mark hunts will be able to take place. Uh, the reality is if, if you know, things don't get better and if things escalate or, you know, even stay the same, uh, worst case scenario is we bump back and, you know, we, we postpone everything to next year. The, the heartburn for me, Chris, like I'm sure you, um, although you have the opportunity, your farms and such are literally right there by your house. So, I mean, even if for whatever reason, no hunters could come, you can probably still go out here and gobble, you know, and do the whole thing. Mine's a little more yeah. complicated with the Goulds being in Mexico. And, you know, this would be my 11th season, uh, doing our hunts down there. An interesting thing to note is the White Mountain Apache here for Merriam's, uh, I, I, been doing that hunt a lot with some friends um that hunt has been completely canceled both hunts uh the san carlos indian reservation uh canceled both of their turkey hunts as well as their spring bear hunts uh the the national wow. forest here in arizona is still open but they've closed all the campgrounds so as of right now turkey hunting in arizona which won't start till till the kind of the end of april uh is still quote unquote a go um, but I, you know, it, it would not surprise me if the national forest, you know, if the federal government steps in and, and potentially, uh, closes, uh, the national forest, I think it would be a shame if they did that. Um, but it, it, in other words, everything is up in the air as I'm sure you, you are, um, going through as well. Yeah, no, and that's, that's the thing that just frustrates me. You know, I mean, I don't know if we've, I know I haven't really talked much about it officially and, and I don't know how much you've talked about it officially, but I do lean much more libertarian and more, um, I'm a constitutional conservative, if, if you will. And, and the thing is, is I understand that the difficult position that some of our government officials are in given this time, because let's just face it, there's a lot of stupid people out there um, that just, it just aren't aren't practicing common sense and unfortunately a lot of those stupid people are creating the situation where some of our government government officials want to just shut everything down so yeah so we ended up with our kansas governor um just recently <laughs> put in place on, i think it starts monday or sunday night midnight or something like that anyway uh, supposedly a, a stay-at-home order that we're, you know no one's supposed to go out unless you're going grocery shopping if you're going to go to, to get medicine or if you want to go out and, and hike and, you know, go outdoors, it's like, okay, well, what the heck does that mean? So people can go out and hike and, and recreate, but you can't go to work. I've got, I've got an issue with that. And I, you know, I've, I've had some conversation with people. I said, you know, it, it in Colorado's kind of in the same boat as well. I think for Kansas, I think our situation is, I think our governor wants to be able to make it known that she's doing things to, open the door for the possibility of federal tax dollars, federal aid 
Um, but it's one thing for our government officials that keep pulling a paycheck and they have a, you know, a nice retirement and they have their health care and everything paid for and everybody the taxpayer dollars. It's one thing for them to say, okay, everybody stay home and don't go to work. It's another thing for us private businesses and small businesses to say, okay, well, yeah, who's going to, how are we going to flow that? So I, it's going to be an interesting situation. If, if they tell us they want us to go, you know, social distance, but, but by all means, go out and, you know, enjoy the nature, you know, go and enjoy nature. Oh, but by the way, we're also going to shut down all of the places that you can go enjoy nature. I think you're going to see some people starting to revolt because I'm already starting to see it here in Kansas where people are like, okay, you know, we're being patient. We're being smart. We're, we're trying to do what we can do, but um, let's not get ridiculous here. So for us, I, I think the smart thing that's going to help. Yeah. Cause you're in a different boat than I am. Cause you've got the landowner tags that you've, bought and, and the logistics of, of going to Mexico, I have that flexibility here that normally when I book my hunt, I, I will book through April, but I always kind of leave May. Our season goes from April 1st and through May 31st. I always leave May as a wild card so that I have some flexibility. If people want to come and hunt in May and the birds are doing well, then great. We can come on and out and hunt, but I always kind of leave it as a buffer. I think that's going to help us greatly this year because that first group, again, they're, they're from a state that has a movement order in place. Um, so they're, they just said, well, can we bump it to the, that first part of May? I'm like, absolutely. If some of our Colorado hunters that were planning on coming out say, hey, we can't come, can we bump it? I've got the flexibility this year to play with it a little bit. But luckily – most of these movement orders so far are such that if you're going to go out into the wild, so to speak, and, and enjoy nature, as long as you're, you know, stay six feet apart from people and blah, 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 practice, you know, common sense, you're good to go. So I think our hunts are good to go right now. I've looked at everything, you know, Kelly and I've looked at everything. I think we still are good under the movement order to have folks come out and hunt because we've got a separate place for them to stay. They're going to drive their own vehicles. We can, you know, we can do the whole, we can play the whole social distancing thing, but I just fear that we've got some of our politicians playing, you know, making political hay with this whole thing. Um, and I, I just hope that things settle down quickly and common sense starts to creep back into public policy and uh, we can just get back to our lives here sooner than later. Otherwise, it's going to get ugly out there. Yeah, I think economically, um, you know, I, I do not have a, I'm sorry, but I don't have a positive outlook on what's about to happen. I think this is going to be catastrophic in a lot of sense. Um, I think you, you cannot shut down businesses for this long. I mean, they need to really get going here in the next, let's say within two weeks, they need to be up and rolling. If they're not, I think we're going to have a lot of issues, um, I, we're going to have a lot of issues regardless. Um, but I think, you know, everyone out there listening, you know, there's no need to panic, but you definitely need to kind of start figuring out what the, you know, plan B, C, D, E is, uh, in how this all rolls out. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate situation that we're in because quite honestly, Chris, the economy was never better. Like it's, probably the best u.s economy that we've ever had and 
it's not like the fundamentals were bad. This is completely under, you know, this is completely just a crazy thing that has happened. And those fundamentals probably, while people are saying remain strong, I think the, the issue is you, you basically, you know, I've talked to a lot of people yesterday and this morning that are big time businessmen that have literally had to lay at, at times half their workforce to three quarters to all of their workforce completely off. So, yes. you know, yeah. I think there was three and a half million people for the week that filed for unemployment. It's, it's never, that, that number's never happened. You know, we've never seen that. Yeah. So anyway, um, let's talk turkeys, um, and hope for the best and hope that, uh, we can get all of this behind us. Uh, we're going to do, we've got a whole series of question and answer here. A uh, bunch of questions come in, so we're just going to hit them uh, one at a time and try and answer them as in-depth as we can, and then we'll just move to the next question. So you ready, Chris? Let's do it, brother. Okay. All right. Why are gobblers hesitant to come downhill to a call? You jumping on that one or are you pitching it? Pitching that well, one of the things... Uh, you know, I'll have you weigh in too, but one of the things that I've always thought is why they're hesitant is they have the optical advantage when usually when they're above, when they're just think of yourself standing on a ridge and you're looking down as opposed to looking up. A lot of times when you're above and looking down a ridge line or down a hill, you have optical advantage. So that's one thing that jumps out at me is, and, and I've had gobblers come uphill and I've had them come downhill. So I've heard that gobblers typically don't like to come downhill and I'm sure that that's the case. I think it's a little bit of a wives tale. I'm really curious what you have to say, Chris, but the one thing I could think from a turkey's perspective is they can kind of stand up high and look down and say, no, you come to me. Um, I'm in a safer spot where I can see better and I'm not going to come down the hill. You come up to me and I'll watch you come all the way up the whole way so that everything's safe up here. What do you think? Yeah, no, you, you nailed it. I, it, it's, I think it, it does depend on the vegetation in your area. So if you're in open ponderosa pine forest, I can tell you, yeah, I agree. They, they have the advantage, again, especially a goblet, especially if he's strutting. The whole point of him strutting is to draw attention to himself and, and show off for the hen. If the hen wants to breed, the hen will walk up to him. And if she doesn't want to breed and he just wants to show off for the hen, there's been there's plenty of times where you can watch hens out feeding, and they might be 80, 100 yards away from the gobbler. He's just got himself in a strategic location where he can keep an eye on him and show off and if he's in a higher elevation in open terrain he's you got it he's got the optical advantage to sit there and show off and do his thing and let her let the hen that he's hearing or the turkeys he's hearing come up to him or in the, the situation of, of actual live birds if he sees those other turkeys you know down in the bottom or down lower elevation and they're just walking away well, he has the option either he can drop down and join them or he can just parallel them up on the ridge and keep showing off. Now, in situations, and I'm, this is from my standpoint, when I hear people talk about elevation, my mind automatically goes to Merriam's, but you, same thing with you with the Goulds and everything else. Um, if you're in those areas where you're in, say, oak brush, 
and there's, you know, thick cover covering the mountain and maybe a pond, you know, ponderosa pine and oak brush situation. Okay. That might be a little bit of a different story. You might have some birds above you, but if they can't see you and maybe you're on a, a, a little bench in the middle of the slope and you're set up there and they're above you and it's just thick oak brush where they can't look down in, then you absolutely have a good opportunity to call them down to you because you're in a, a, a logical place on the map where they where hens and turkeys might be hanging out. So I've had very much I, I've had very good success doing that. But when we were talking about open ponderosa pines, when I was hunting, say uh, the Front Range of Colorado, where it's just pine, you know, pine trees and then bare leaf litter and maybe grass, you you've got to be on the same elevation that they are or above them on the, the crest of the ridge to have a high level of success. Otherwise, they just strut and they just gobble and they just keep doing their own thing. Got the uh, next question. All things Merriam's, what triggers flock breakups in early spring when hens start nesting? Spring green up. They're going to follow that snow line. They're going to follow the spring green up. I mean, daylight obviously is going to, the photo period is going to finally start changing the hormones. But what really starts to allow them to break up out of their winter flock is that spring green up. Once things start, you get the snow melting, there's higher protein forage on the landscape. As that increases, there's more opportunities for hens to go different directions and have high quality food. And they'll just start to break up and head in the direction of where they usually, you know, stage before they go off and nest. So typically it's that snow melt and the spring spring green up. Is that what you've seen down in Arizona on the White Mountain? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, And one of the things, you know, I think we need to cover is what is spring green up and what is the snow line? I mean, what do people look for? And I would say you literally want to go where uh, you drive and the Forest Service road is blocked off and you can't go any further because there's snow drifts. And then you've found the snow line. So, I mean, it is exactly what it sounds like or find... You know, that you're going to climb in elevation till you finally start seeing patches of snow all over. And you kind of want to be in that range where when you go and look at those snow drifts where the water is melting underneath, if you'll notice um, that there's actually green sprouts and stuff greening up right there on that, you know, as the snow melts, it's starting to green all around there. But that's what you're looking for especially in these states that have, you know, high elevation all the way down to transition down to lower elevation, you, you know, turkeys will literally follow that snow line. Yeah. And, and don't be afraid to leapfrog um, because you might find some, you know, patches of, of snow and some dark timber in, in, in lower elevations, but all of a sudden you get yourself back in there and you've got some south facing slopes or southwest facing slopes that maybe, you know, they've warmed up a little bit more than what some of the thicker timber was. Don't, those, those birds will walk right over that, those snow drifts to get to some of these bare patches. So don't, I'm thinking of one place in Southwest Colorado where it's not, it's not uncommon. So the birds will stay down low in, in the low oak brush 
And then as you start moving up the mountain, there's a band of thicker pines and thicker timber, and the snow just holds a lot longer. But if you can get past that band of snow and get starting to climb up a little bit higher elevation, you start getting into the big mature ponderosa pines. Well, because they're more open, they have started to fall out a little bit better. Or because it's more open, the wind has is, is kept some of those snow drips, you know, snow patches a little bit more clear to where those areas open up earlier. So, yeah, it, you're, you're looking... Jay, you nail it. You're looking for the place where that snow is melting and it's exposing bare ground, the new grasses, the new forbs are coming in, and it's not uncommon to see tracks in and out and around the snow, over drifts, in and out of the tent. You'll see tracks in the snow all the time, um, but they are going to crowd that spring green up line hard. Yeah, uh, the next question was same, same guy, curious about mountain merriams in response to snow following snow line i think we covered that uh we've got do merriams uh this is from co bachman underscore bachman do merriams exhibit any patterns in their roosting location seems entirely random where they tree up so merriams turkeys exhibiting patterns in their roosting locations um one of the things that I've found is that typical that Merriams have kind of areas, not, I've found where they've winter flocked and they like literally roosted in the same tree all winter, but it seems like in the spring, they end up having kind of a pattern and a rotation where they'll hit a certain facing slope. And, you know, it may not be the exact tree, but you can every couple of days, yes, I'll hear a gobbler there. I'll hear a gobble there, a gobble there. And you find these common areas that they do like to roost in. They're not as much, and Chris, I'll let you speak to this in a minute, but, you know, the rios, you know, where you've got river bottom type rios and some of the stuff in Kansas and Texas where they're, they don't have a lot of choices for roost trees. So they tend to roost in those trees that they have and that's where they roost and that's where you see a lot of parts of the country they do not like you to hunt the roost areas because that's where if the birds get bumped out of there they may move over five miles because the next roost is miles away so a lot of property owners will say we're not going to hunt the roost because we we want to we want them to always come back at night on the property when it comes to merriam's I've found common places. I've found birds that until they're pressured, uh, they tend to roost, and some will roost in the same tree. Uh, but it, it, it seems like as pressure increases, they kind of bounce around, and it seems as though year after year for Merriam's, I can find certain ridges and certain pockets that I'm going to say, you know, I always hear a bird there, and yep, there he is gobbling. Maybe a different bird, but they have certain spots that they like to roost. Chris? Yeah, I, I don't need to add anything about your barriums. That That's exactly it. Um, I'll even, but I'll just say with Rios, even with us out here, even though we might have a big river bottom that has numerous large big cottonwoods in it, that all of those cottonwoods could be great roost trees, our birds will still, year in, year out, every single year will come back and roost in the exact same trees. They, the Rios do like to have the same roost year after year. 
Merriam's, you nailed it. They, they seem to have an area, and they might be in this tree tonight and that tree tomorrow. Or so I've even seen some on a pattern where on night one, they're on this ridge. Night two, they're across the valley on that ridge. And then night three, they're down the valley on that ridge. And then, you know, day four, here they are back at night one roost spot. They, they just kind of they move around an area. But, yeah, I mean, most of the time, you're going to find regions that they tip or areas that they typically roost in for Merriam's, whereas Rio's, you'll find a tree. One thing I'd like to add, too, is in talking about, you know, we can talk about roosting turkeys, but just something that came into my mind is, especially guys hunting, you know, big tracts of public ground for Merriam's, whether it be in Arizona or New Mexico or Colorado or Utah or Montana, whatever it might be, um, in Wyoming, keep in mind that it's, so I've, I've found where birds roosted. Let's say I made a play on them in the morning and they went the other way and I tried to, you know, kind of keep tabs on them and then they just shut up and I never heard them again. And then I'm like, well, I don't have anything else going. So, you know, there was four gobblers here this morning. I'm going to set up somewhere close to where they were roosted this morning and hope that I can catch them coming back to the roost. One of the things that I, I would that just came to my mind that I'd like to point out, and I've seen it so many times, is you're sitting there and you're like, man, you're looking at your watch, you don't hear anything, and you're like, man, they should be, you know, like, where are they? I've seen it so many times where literally right at last light, here they come and they're on a beeline, you, yep. don't, you don't even hear them. And then all of a sudden you just catch them and they're running or trotting, you know, just, just clicking along and they go right by you, go right up the ridge and then fly straight across horizontal into the tree. And you're like, they, I, I wasn't read. Like they, I sat here for three hours and then they just ran by me. Yes. I've had the same yes. scenario where you're sitting there and you're like, nah, they're not coming. I should go somewhere else. More times than not, if they're if you did not booger them in the morning, they didn't see you. You didn't call too much where they're like, "I'm shutting up." You know, you'll know when it's like we're out of here. But if it's like, no, they gobbled the whole way and they left and they're just gone, I would literally wait there till dark till you can't see because I cannot tell you how many times that I've been sitting and I like to get there like two three hours before you know, maybe set some decoys out and get all set up and you sit there and sit there and sit there and you periodically call and nothing, I mean, nothing. And then, you, you know, you sit there and you literally are about to get up and you think, I'll just try one more call on my box. And you go, yop, 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 and just, I mean, boom, right there. And it's like, and then here comes the hens and there they are. And boom, you've got your successful roost, you know, basically set up. And they, the bird comes right in and you kill them. My point with all of that is you have to be patient when you're trying to predict where they're going to roost and where you're going to set up and waiting on them. But once you commit to waiting on them, you have to commit. You cannot leave 30 minutes early because the best time is usually 15 minutes before fly up. Because they don't tend to linger a lot right around where they roost is what I've found. They tend to be somewhere, they linger, and then they make a mad dash for the roost, especially with Merriam's. Chris, what's your impression on that? 
Exactly. And the same thing I've seen numerous times for our Rios, and I'm laughing while you're talking about that because I can literally, there is one property that has a habitual roost site, and they do exactly what you say every single time. It's one of our spots that I will set up on limited occasion. If we're down to the last day or two of, of a uh, last day of a hunt or we're towards the end of season and it's getting t- difficult, uh, I will hunt this roost spot. But understanding that, okay, you bust a bird out of there, then I'm just going to, I'll take one bird off the roost there and then I won't come back to that property. But no, that's, see, out in Kansas, our, in a lot of Western states, um, turkey, the, the daily shooting light is one half hour before sunrise until sunset. Well, I've literally seen where birds are doing exactly what you're saying, Jay. They are out in the field, milling around. He's out there gobbling. They're strutting. The hens are finally starting to come back in, and they're out there two, three, four, five hundred yards way out in the middle of nowhere. Linger, linger, linger. Sun, you know, here, here we go. Sunset. It's, it's getting close. It's getting close to sunset. It's getting close, and then all of a sudden, here they come. They just single file. He's out there strutting, going nuts, but here come those hens, bum, 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 and they just march right in and go right up to the tree, and it, I'm literally watching my watch going, okay, we've got one minute left of shooting light. Is he going to be in range? Otherwise, they're they're flying up after it, flying up way too late. Right. So you're absolutely right. If you're going to do an evening setup, you need to be set there and then you nailed it. Don't move. Because the other flip side of that, too, is if we're talking about later in the season and the hens start going off and, and nesting, you will have gobblers that will come back to the roost early in hopes to catch those last hens and try to get back. Sometimes those gobblers will get back to the roost a little early and they'll start gobbling just to let everybody know, hey, I'm over here. Let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's get assembled back up. Where are you? The hens might be off on nest now. But he's getting a little desperate because he's not seeing his ladies every morning, so he comes back to the roost a little bit early. So, yeah, if you're going to set in the evening, in and in in around a roost site, you need to you need to just sit there and wait. Don't don't try to run and gun. I don't anyway. I, I I don't. I agree with you, brother. Just sit there and wait, and just take it all the way to the last ounce of legal shooting light. You know, my friend Daniel Franco of Burnt Timber Outfitters up in Unit 3C, he always just laughs and just shakes his head because for years I would go up and hunt 3C for turkeys here in Arizona. And he's like, how do you always kill birds in the evening? He goes, you know, I, I need to see what you're doing. And I'm like, well, the reason that I'm, and it's, Dar even laughs. He's like, Jay kills birds in the evening like no other. And I think I'm, I kill more birds in the evening than I do the morning. One of the things I will say is there are times when I have a really good roost situation where there's multiple gobblers, there's a lot of action, and and they're hot, and they're in a spot where I know that they love to roost. There's times where opening morning or that morning that I'm hunting, if I'm not in exactly the perfect situation, I'll just shut up and let them go. I don't want to disturb them because I know I can come and get in a good position and I know I can kill them in the evening. If, if, and then I'll literally let them go. 
I won't even make a play on them, and I'll pick up, and I'll go to a whole nother spot and try and do my run and gun, mid-morning run and gun, and then 3 o'clock, I'll be right back where I need to be because I feel like, you know, that afternoon when they're coming back to the roost, you can catch them, and a lot, I've had so much success killing birds that I've heard in the morning and basically went and set up and waited for them to come back that I will literally not make a play or even call. I might call a little bit, but if I can tell it's not going to happen, I just shut up. I let the whole flock go off and I just make my plan for the afternoon. And that's, that's how I've been successful. I mean, I've done that in New Mexico. I've done that in Arizona, um, on, on Merriam's and, you know, certainly we do it on Gould's, but, uh, you know, you have to have a level of patience to not just hammer them where they're going to be like, yeah, that was a little too much funkiness. You know, it's, you know, they know that, you know, they know when something's not right and they'll be like, well, and then all of a sudden you go and sit in the afternoon and they roost on the next ridge over and you're like, well, crap, I put too much pressure on them this morning and I pushed them out of here. So that's, that's just uh, something we'll go to the next question here. Ever worry about scent control while turkey hunting? Uh, Chris, you're a biologist. You can answer this better. But turkeys don't have a sense of smell like an elk does, like a deer, like a bear, you know, like a dog, like a cat. They don't have that sense of smell. I, I believe they do have some sort of sense of smell, but not in the notion of like smell. And they're using that as a defense mechanism. I've heard, is it the olfactory senses that they actually do have them, but it's not in the sense that that we know smell chris yeah correct i mean that if the old added you know the old joke is if if turkeys had a sense of smell we'd never kill one um yeah you don't have to worry about scent control for turkeys uh, the only time that i've you know considered or heard people talk about scent control when you're turkey hunting is if you're in an area that and you want to set up in a, say, a food plot or a particular pasture or whatever, that there's a bunch of whitetails that are also coming out there that, that want to feed out in that spot while the turkeys are out there. Sometimes I've heard people saying, yeah, we had to go with scent control just to try to help keep the whitetails from not blowing everything else out. But 99.9% of the time, you don't need to worry about it. I mean, heck, you know, for our clients out here, we're spraying down a lot of them, you know, you're spraying your pant legs off with, you know, deep woods off and stuff just to keep the mosquitoes and the ticks and everything off. So, no, you, you don't need to worry about it. Got a question here. How close do you set up on roosted birds in the morning? Well, it depends on can I get into that roost in, can I get in close to the roost without them seeing me and then, with it all depends on the terrain most of the time i'm trying to get within about 100 yards or so of that roost if i can get in close and not be seen i know some people will set their blind and decoys right smack dab where the birds can literally sit up on the roost and look at the decoy spread i know i heck we've done that down in, in mexico with you on ghouls i usually will try to set up where maybe they can't quite see me from the roost but as soon as they touch down on the field or wherever they're going to fly out, that's when they can see the decoys, and I want to be as close as I possibly can at that 
location, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, your reasoning for them not being able to see you off the limb is you, you want to be able to call to them. You want to be able to kind of create that situation of who's over there? Who, who you know, what are they doing over yeah. there? I can't quite see them, which makes them come towards you in your direction. That's what you're pushing for there. A lot of times yep. when all set up in view of them, uh, it will be with the strutter decoy trying to elicit that um, you know, I, a gobbler's moved into your area and the gobbler's going to fly down and or the hens may fly right to that gobbler. Um, I've also had jakes and hens set up where I've set those up and a gobbler just sees that jake down there and they just, you know, they can't handle it. I would say birds that are less pressured, you can get away with more of that and it's you can be a little fancier and a little cuter. Uh, if you've got birds that are, you know, very well seasoned, I would probably go with Chris's approach where they can't see uh, your decoy spread. And they, you know, because in essence, they could just sit up on the limb because they see the turkey, the hen decoys. They see a Jake decoy, you know, they see a whole flock of turkey decoys, whatever it may be. And they're like, hmm, I've played this game a lot and I've heard a lot of different hunters. You know, they don't think necessarily like that, but. They know, and they're like, those birds, if they want to come to me, they're going to come over here. And if not, if they are over there, well, how come they're not moving? How can, you know, I'm sure birds sit there and look at the decoys and go, ah, something's not right with that. And so that's where the strategy of, you know, being just out of sight comes in. Um, Chris, that... (laughs) I played recently on Facebook, I played the video of, um, a couple years ago, you were guiding for me, uh, down in Mexico on, for the Goulds and, and you had two archers in the blind and the bird no. comes <laughs> in and the, the full strutter gets shot and then you move and you, and yeah. you had some bow issues and, uh, then Jonathan, you're like, all right, Jonathan, you're up and sh- head shoots that one bird and literally sh- just shoots his head off that. I mean, that thing was, that was such an awesome video. Yeah, no, it, it, it was fun. It, and I do, I feel bad for, for the first hunter. He was, it, he just got so flustered, but yeah, no, it could work. And, and that was a set where we were pretty darn close to the roost. So the birds, we were set actually in a spot where the, again, the birds could not physically see us, but they, we were just out of sight. And so as soon as they pitched out and hit the ground, now they can see the strutter. Um, the other thing, and the other thing too, that people need to keep in mind, and this kind of gets lost in translation a little bit, I think. People know that turkeys have great eyesight, but then people think, well, well but they but they can't see at night. Okay, well, no, they they don't they can't see at night like deer do. Um, but turkeys, their eyesight is much more. They they have much better visual acuity on detail and they have a much better ability at spotting movement, the slightest tiny movement than humans. Okay. So they're better at those things than humans. And they do see color. That's why they're the turkey's head is red, white, and blue. They see just like we do a little bit better in, in details and movement, but they see just about as good as we do in low light. So the other reason why I kind of like, setting up just out of their visual range while they're in the tree 
is because if you're getting in there and you're trying to set up, now it's one thing if you're shooting a shotgun and you're just going to slip in, sit down at the base of a tree or a rock or brush pile or whatever, get your gun on your, on your knee. That, that's, that's one thing. But when you're going to try to bow hunt, and you, especially if you're going to try to do it with a ground blind or you want to put a decoys in it, the more movement you have out under that roost, it, if, you, if you're going to be doing stuff under that roost, it needs to be pitch black. And you've got to be dead quiet. And you can't have a headlamp on. Oh, golly. Thank you for that. And I Diesel, say that, please. but, I, I, you know, you would think that would just oh, be a given, but no. No. You're, Jay, don't spoil it, dang it. I'm going to have you on the podcast, and we're going to talk about some, some out-there guide <laughs> stuff. So don't, don't – we're, we're going to have some fun. But, yes, dude, you nailed – thank you. I completely didn't even think about it. Oh, my gosh. Do not have a headlamp on. Do not – don't check your phone. While you're out in the field, because that goes, and that thing, okay. The turkeys, remember, they're up in the roost for safety. They pitch out and slide down in those fields and down to their their flyout spot in places where they feel it's going to be safe. And if you're in there moving around in low light, they're going to see movement. They, don't, they may not know what it is, but they're going to be able to see that kind of movement. And most turkey decoys are going to be of a darker color, especially if you're putting a strutter out there. So you're pulling that decoy out of a bag, and now all of a sudden there's a big black ball, and I can hear some weird sound going on down there, and there's movement. The more they hear and the more they see something not quite right, I, I can't tell you how many times I think people end up not having the success in the morning hunts that they normally could see simply because the birds are like, hmm. That seemed a little sketchy going that way. Eh, we're going to pitch out and go the other way this morning. Just because they're just unsure of what all that noise and movement was down over where they generally pitch out. So just there's been times, literally, that if I want to hunt a roost site the next morning, I will go out at midnight in the pitch middle of the night and put the ground blind out. And I might even put the decoys out in the middle of the night. And then just slip out of there, and that way, if it's me, my friends, or my clients, we can just literally just slip, 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 slip. I'll have the trick chairs, everything in there. All we need to do is just walk right down through it, go right across, slip into the blind, and just be done. Just so that way, I'm not creating disturbance under the roost in the morning and making a bunch of noise and, and shiny headlamps and everything. Everything else. <laughs> my favorite is uh, you get in and you're like. I'm telling clients, you know, you're, we're going to be really, really close. Like, we're right on them. I've got them pinned here. And I go, okay, this is your tree. You know, actually, before they get to the tree, I'll say, okay, I'm going to take you over to your tree. And when I stop, that's your tree. So just settle down right there and, you know, get ready. And I'll point the direction you need to have your gun barrel. And I can't tell you how many times you get over there and they're breaking limbs, branches. Yep getting their saws out and literally I mean we're yep. 50 yards we're so picture yourself up in the top of a tree sitting on a limb and literally you're just sitting up there here here's Chris sitting up on a limb in the dark and he does it every day of his life so Chris is sitting up there and all of a sudden he's can't see what's going on but he hears a saw going off and he hears branches breaking, do you think that he's going to be like, hmm, um, yeah, I'm going to fly down there? No, he's going to fly the opposite direction. 
So sometimes when you, you know, I always like to talk about deer hunting, you know, coos deer specifically, act like they're going to shoot back at you. And guys are like, what? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> act like if they see you, they're going to shoot. So what do you do? You stay out of sight. Same thing with turkeys. If you act like they're up there at the top of the tree, and if you're in range, they can literally shoot you with a pellet gun in the side of the head. Just think of it like that. Or a paintball gun, you know, slapping you in the yeah. side of the face. That might make you be a little more stealthy and kind of slide in and not have to flush your whole tree out and get it. You know, I have guys literally come and they're cracking every branch and they're kicking out all the pine needles and they're kicking, you know, just getting it all set. And then they lay their cushion down and then they go and then they sit yeah, on the cushion and the yeah. cushion goes. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's Cordura or, you know, 600 D Cordura and you're going to be on rocks and, and branches. And they're they're sliding it around. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yep. That's, that's going to be on. And so me, so again, we're, we're totally blowing my, my pocket, but that's exactly. So meanwhile, you and I are sitting back there going, just, you just, you know, the cartoon with the steam is coming out of our ears oh, and our yeah. eyes are spitting. You're like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what are you doing? I, this was all perfect. What are you doing? Quiet. Shut up. Shut up. Quiet. Chris, uh, one of the one of the things you mentioned was um, turkey's eyesight, and they can see color. And you said red, white, and blue. And I know we've talked about it before, but since you mentioned it, I'm sure there's people <laughs> that hear that and go, "Why does red, white, and blue have any significance at all?" Can you explain that? Yeah, so they change color in their head to communicate different things. That's, I mean, that's the whole point behind it. They are a very, I mean, yes, they. they talk and they gobble and they yelp and cluck and all the other things but just like we talk about elk stuff um a, a lot of this uh, of their communication is also visual cues why he struts but that's also why the head change color that the color changes in their head can uh, communicate different things and so they can have their head go all all red they can have their head a mix of you know their waddles are bright red their face that's the size of the face face is just this beautiful sky blue and then there maybe their forehead is just as, as white as white can be and then there's other times when the whole head just turns white all those things mean different things um there's you can have a little controversy and discussion about what a white head means i am at this moment i am still convinced that a white head is displayed when a bird believes that he is the dominant bird in the group or in the area. Because uh, you can see Jake's have white heads. Uh, a red, white, and blue head, in my opinion, based on all of the research and based on all the observations, red, white, and blue seems to be that head combination where a bird is showing off and trying to attract attention. He's trying, he's basically, uh, it is a, it's a neutral, in my opinion, it's a neutral color scheme as it is communicating to other gobblers, but it is a color scheme that is meant to show off and attract the hens. And then a all red head can mean anything from, you know, aggression or um, distress or nervousness or, you know, it, there's, a, there's a number of different situations where you'll see an all red head. The red, white, and blue is my preferred color scheme just because 
I have some birds in my area, you know, you might have a two-year-old bird that just got his butt whooped in all these other places. I want him to feel as though my decoy is neutrally speaking to him and is just simply trying to show off for some hens. So that way, if that got the real gobbler comes in and he's a little shy, he doesn't feel threatened by the, the strutter decoy that I have. And if he's aggressive, well, he'd, heck, he'd come in and just beat the piss out of it. But now, red, white, and I, whenever I talk about a turkey's head, you, you're right, Jay. I kind of automatically default to saying red, white, and blue because that's that's the one I, I prefer. Okay, next question. How do you hunt turkeys in cold, rainy weather? Sleep in. <laughs> that's I was going to say, <laughs> I don't. Um one of the things that you know there's guys that are forced to only have two or three days where they're a lot you know they're able to go hunt because of you know work or what have you uh i've been fortunate to be able to hunt turkeys you know for a long time now and hunt them for you know 30 40 days uh in a row and you know if i know that it's going to be just horrible weather a lot of times i won't go out but to answer your question there's several things that that you can do one of the things that comes in to, to my mind if you know it's going to be raining and cold and just nasty is you can get in some of these ground blinds and use that for cover and i'll have chris speak to that because you actually can you know you can even pack in a little um you know heater of some sort and you can most blinds are pretty water repellent and keep the water off you uh and you you know you can warm up inside the blind uh, another trick I've seen, uh, Marvin Robbins, uh, who's passed away. He was an old timer, a mentor of mine. And a lot of people here in the Arizona area, he used to do a lot of Turkey seminars. He would always say, um, I always carry a couple bread bags, plastic bread bags. Um, and I put my box call in the bread bag and then I got a rubber band and I sealed the bag up and he would actually play up on stage the box call inside the bread bag and it sounded the same it basically sounded pretty much the same a little bit quieter uh but he talked about hunting with a mutual friend joe slayton over in california uh in you know having a lot of rain over there and the call, you know the friction calls constantly being wet he said it wasn't a problem because i would keep my box calls uh in a, in a bread bag and called you know he talked about calling in a lot of turkeys right in rain uh, with, a, you know, the box call in the plastic bag. And I think you could also uh, take a bigger sheet of plastic and put it over the top of you and you could, you know, play your pot and peg or, or, or slate calls, if you will, uh, and, you know, keep those strikers dry, keep the surface dry. And then, you know, technology, they've even come out with, you know, wet boxes. So they've got... Um, material on it that actually box call sounds just fine and soaking wet you can literally turn the sink on and completely submerge your call and pull it up and it it, it sounds pretty darn good as well as there's pot and peg calls where they have strikers and surfaces that work uh just fine wet so you know if, if you're hunting and know that you're probably going to be encountering some weather um I, I would look into those things chris do you have anything to add there yeah, no, there's, like you said, there's a different ways you can keep your calls dry if you're using friction calls. Um, the other thing, too, is for us, 
from a behavior standpoint, a lot of times you might not see those birds out, you know, the gobblers out there strutting very much. They just might be kind of puffed up and just trying to beat the cold weather themselves. But I do see oftentimes times where, depending on how the rain and wind is going, don't be surprised to find some of those birds staying out in some fields. Now, if they have the ability to get in out of the weather in some, like, cedars and some thicker areas, okay, that might work. But in certain habitats, I've also seen them just stay out in the field because it's just safer. They can see a little bit better if if, if it's just loud in the trees and, and in the cover and the rain is just hitting everything and everything's moving and blowing around. It's very hard for them to keep tabs on any possible predators. And so you can see them just kind of head out in the open a little bit more. You just have to have a little bit more patience. You've got to figure out where the birds are going to want to be. Um, I do out here in my country where you have those uh, areas of cedars. Um, those can be great because even if the wind is blowing and the wind and the rain is, is coming down, there's still a quiet area. So and you don't have a lot of a lot of movement going on. So they can get in and around those pockets of cedars and take cover, especially out of the wind. But I've also seen them out in a wide open field, and you just got to again, you got to figure out where they want to go what their pattern is, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, get yourself in a ground blind if you can do it. Um, yeah, and just bring in a little buddy heater. And don't be shocked that sometimes those birds will stay on the roost longer in the morning as well. So just, just have some patience, sit it out, and because uh, the birds are going to be out there. I mean, it's not like they can go to their house and, you know, sit in the living room and watch TV. They, they live there. They're, they're not going anywhere. They just maybe sucking up the miserable weather like you are and they're just a little bit slower to, to respond to a call or move your way. I think you hit something there that I want to make sure that people understand is more times than not in rough weather whether you have high winds you have rain or snow almost all the time I've noticed that they will literally just like Chris said they'll stay on the limb they'll stay roosted for a lot longer than what you think. I've had birds actually roosted before, have a, you know, two-inch snowstorm overnight, three-inch snowstorm, um, and you go there the next morning, you set up, and you don't hear anything, nothing, quiet as can be, and you sit there, and you're like, I know they're here in the trees, it gets light, and you call, they don't answer, nothing, total, just zero, and so you kind of zip everything up and you go and you get up and you look up and they're literally roosted in the trees right where they were. And they're just, whether their head's under their wing or they're just going to be quiet and they're not gobbling. I've seen them do that in rain. I've seen them do it in wind and I've seen them do it in snow. So keep that in yeah. mind. Will gobblers on the roost respond to a call after dark? This is from Blake B. Hunt's. If so, what is the best call to use, Chris? Sometimes. Um, there have been times when I've seen birds respond, you know, after it's after it's finally gone dark. But most of the time, there's that little, it depends on when they fly up. Um, if they fly up to the roost early in the evening and there's still plenty of daylight, you can have them up there just gobbling like crazy for, you know, 30 minutes. But there's been oftentimes, just like Jay said earlier, about, you know, them just, making a mad dash to the roost. They may make a mad dash, you know, with the last 10 minutes of actual visible light. They fly up to the tree. He might gobble once or twice, and then they're, they're, they're shut down. They're going to bed. So typically, I usually anticipate 
being able to get a bird to gobble or hearing a bird to gobble by about the time it gets dark. Maybe a little bit after that. But if, if you're talking, well, it's dark and now it's 15, 30 minutes later, no, that bird is usually asleep. And one of the things that I like to do is I like to use the coyote howler. Um, Primos makes the one that I've used for a long, long time. It's purple. It's a three-way. It's a peacock, coyote, and woodpecker, I think, all in one. I don't know what they call it, but it's it's purple. They've made it forever. Uh, makes a real shrill coyote sound. Uh, and... You know, to take this kind of a step further, is there a call to use? That's the call that I use the most for goulds and the most for merriams. And most of the hunting that I do is I do a coyote howl. Um, Now, one of the things that you have to understand is when you do that, if you're too close to them uh, and blow that call, if you're 50, 60, 70 yards from the birds, a lot of times they'll, it'll spook them because they think a coyote literally is underneath their tree or they'll shut up so at night i'll use that a lot more than i would in the morning because i don't care as long as they gobble if i don't know they're there and i'm just prospecting and trying to find a bird i'm pretty aggressive with my coyote howl i'm just trying to get a bird to shock as soon as he shocks depending on how far away he is if he's real close i'm not going to make any more sound and i'm going to let it get completely pitch back dark and I'm going to slip out of there. If the bird is, you know, half mile, three quarters of a mile or uh, longer away, if I'm by myself, I'm going to try and get a lot closer to that bird and try it again and try and get a, I'm trying to pinpoint exactly where that bird is. The most deadly combination of that is if you have someone with you, um, you either send that person in forward advancing towards where you think the bird is gobbling and what we normally do is, you know, say we'll give it a three a three minute count or a five minute count, and then I I'm gonna hit that call, and then you are you've moved steadily towards that direction, and then wait when you get to your three minute count, sit there and wait. I'm gonna call, and so that person then can pinpoint where that bird is, or I'll do the opposite. I'll have the person stay where we just were and coyote howl once I get in there closer and sometimes we'll be able to say, okay, and, and do it every three minutes. And then, so the person can advance up and I mean, you can literally get as really close where with your binoculars, you can actually spot the bird gobbling. So in essence, I'm back coyote howling every three minutes and Chris is beelining towards the sound. Then he's counting in his head three minutes and then he's going to stop, listen, I hit the call again, okay, the bird's still another 400 yards away, he, he's counting to three, I'm counting to three minutes in my head, we get to that three minute period, boom, he hits it again, and Chris, or I hit it again, and, and Chris has the bird pinpointed at 115 yards, and then Chris marks on his on X uh, map, and then marks a physical, you know, if there's an old blocked off road, he actually puts a log, or puts a mark of some sort, stacks three rocks up, so then in the morning, Chris drags me right back to that spot and says, okay, here's my three rocks. We need to walk 50 paces that direction, and we're going to be right on them. That's how I roost birds. Chris? Yep. Anything to add? Yep. No, no. I, I mean, 
obviously terrain is going to make a you know difference on where you know out where i'm at it's really relatively open and so yeah you're absolutely right i i I will make sure i've got a spotting scope within the truck with me and i can get up on these vantage points on the hills yeah i mean at this point now i on the the properties i manage i know right where they're going to roost but if it's a new if it's a new property or if i'm helping somebody i can just get to the top of the hill somewhere so i can see that river bottom i'll listen a gobble and just get the binoculars out and start going through with a spotting scope and you can you'll oftentimes you'll be able to see them sitting up there and then again that's where you've got to see if you can get somebody out there with you or you have the ability to just kind of just start you know shortening that distance to where you can actually pinpoint okay that is the tree you know and the thing that too while we're talking about this the other thing that is so handy these days is when you do have something like onyx maps or you know, Google Earth, sometimes just with the train features and field edges and roads or ridges or whatever, you can figure out, you know, you're looking on NX, it gives you a little blue dot where you are. You can sit there and say, oh, that's where I think that bird is, and oh, there's a field line, or oh, this is where the ridge is, oh, that's where the road goes around, oh, I can go here, and it really can help, you know, pinpoint the location of that bird, and then also how you're going to get in on that bird uh, the next morning. Yeah, and one thing to add there that I've been doing um, with with specifically with the OnX, and it's the same with an aerial view that you have on, you know, if you're using Google Earth or OnX Maps, whatever, I use OnX, but when the scenario where Chris is coyote howling and I'm moving closer and a gobbler's a long ways away, Chris is still coyote howling and we're, you know, either by our watch or counting every three minutes, and he's calling, and I'm getting closer and closer. When I finally get pretty darn close, but maybe, maybe you know, it's gotten dark enough where he's just not answering anymore. But I can still see a little bit where there's still, you know, I can see, okay, there's on that next ridge, there's an actual point that comes down, and there's a canyon there. I'll actually open up my OnX, and I'll look at the aerial and the topo, and I'll mark my position where I'm at there, where I'm, you know, so I don't have the bird, like, necessarily roosted and know the tree but i'll mark where i'm at then i'll i'll point and touch the screen with how you can on onyx and and i'll point to where i think the bird is and i'll mark it then i'll pull out and then when chris and i get back together or we get back to camp i can say well i marked the last place where i heard him and this is from my estimation across this canyon on that ridge, this is where I think he is. Well, we get back to camp and we're looking at the map a little bit better. We're like, well, geez, on the other side of the canyon on that ridge is a blocked off forest road. And we can actually park over here, walk that ridge top, and we'll be right across from the mark that you put on the map. And that will put us within 100 or 200 yards of that bird I can't tell you how many times by marking where I'm at the last place I heard him and then marking where I think the bird is just dials me in that much closer to being able to either A, find a different way in that's quieter and easier without having to cross the canyon or B, it just allows me to have a, a you know, a better option to attack that bird. It's huge when you start using these mapping um, devices to kind of hone in where those birds are. And or uh, let's say that something comes, we get back and Dar's got 
guys, I got three, a group of three or four gobblers roosted. I think we can go. We don't even go to that spot the next morning. Well, that afternoon or during the next day, I can go over on that side of the ridge and go, okay, those birds were roosted somewhere right here. And I can look around and I'm like, oh, there's tracks all over right here. Yeah, this is exactly where they must have been. It's just good to keep a, a basic a journal or a log on your map of where you hear turkeys and where you hear them roosted. Next question. Do turkeys migrate like other animals seasonally or stay in the same general area? Depends on the species, uh, subspecies. I, you know, I can tell you real grand turkeys in the Midwest are known for their long distance movements in the winter, you know, to winter ranges. And then they will come back uh, moving up and down those river bottoms. They can move seven miles or more. Uh, up and down seasonally, just in their winter flocks. And then Merriam's absolutely will follow the snow line, and they will be in lower elevations in the, you know, ponderosa pine, oak brush stuff down in the winter and lower elevations in the summer. Yeah, if you're in the higher mountain areas, like, for instance, I used to hunt in north-central Colorado, and those birds would move easily 10 miles. Up, up and down is you know it, on train miles i mean it may only be five miles from point a to point b but they've got to go over three different mountain ridges to you know small mountain ridges to get from their summer area to their winter area and their summer area was above ten thousand feet and their winter area was down you know seven thousand feet so absolutely they will move long distances and that's why you've got to pay attention in the mountainous country you've got to pay attention to where um, that snow line is. And then I tell people all the time, if you're going to come out to Nebraska or Kansas uh, and you're going to hunt turkeys, you've got to pay attention. If, if you're out goose hunting, or in, and I talk about this in eastern Colorado, people all the time will be out waterfowl hunting, goose hunting, and duck hunting in the winter in the eastern part of, the, of Colorado, and they see a, a big winter flock of Rios, and they're like, dude, this is going to be awesome. So they go and get permission from the landowner to be able to turkey hunt there the next spring. It's a limited draw unit, so they go put in for the limited draw tag. They come back there in the spring, and there's not a bird around because they're five miles down the river bottom on somebody else's, you know, completely different property with a different ag field. So, yeah, they will move quite a bit. You've got to pay attention to that. Chris, we've got the next question of decoys and decoy positioning, decoy setups. A can of worms has been opened. What's it, what 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 do you think they are? They just wanting us to just say, okay, here's everything about deep because we can, I guess. But was there any more to that question? Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, decoy that's, layout that's, suggestions and tips. Goodness gracious! That's I have. I literally have on the turkey module an entire video. Theory discussion. We could talk about that for a couple hours because there are changes that I mean, I changed my decoy setup just depending on the season. You know, early season, I'll have more decoys and strutters. As we start moving into the middle part of the season, I might just ditch the strutter altogether and just go to Jake and a couple hens. 
And when we start getting towards late season, sometimes I might just have a single hen out there. There's there's times where also I had a question coming similar to this is, you know, somebody said, well, if all I can do is afford one decoy, and if I could just buy one decoy right now, what would I get? You know, man, so how do you want to, how do you want to, it's like saying if you could only afford home. one bullet, well, I mean, it's like, man, well, you're kind of you know, limiting I, yourself. I, yeah, I, I tell people, you know, for me, if I'm just going to buy one decoy, I think now I've, I, for the bulk of the season, uh, for a variety of different reasons, I think I've kind of settled on, I would probably take a me personally, and, and I'm not, and I know you and I have ribbed each other relentlessly about X versus Dave Smith decoys. Um, I do like the body position of the Avian X um, Jake. Um, they have the they have the blow up version and they've got the HDR the the, the plastic version now the, the hard body one now but I like that body position because he's oh he he demonstrates a submissive posture and I can do a lot with that decoy. So I tell people, you know what? I kind of lean towards having a Jake decoy if I'm only going to buy one because I can pretend that the hens, my calling, simulating a bunch of hens talking, I can, I can set up in places where, okay, it might be difficult for an approaching gobbler to actually see the hens that are maybe in some sort of cover or, you know, out of view, but behaviorally a Jake or a gobbler would be out in the open so that he could show off or strut or do whatever. So I can have a single Jake set out in front of me and still have a plausible scenario that the gobbler doesn't need to see a hen per se. Because the other thing too is, and the reason why I lean this way is because biologically hens are supposed to go to the gobbler. So you'll hear a lot of people say, and I talk about that in the, in the video series, it, we started out with decoys. It was always a hen decoy. Why did we start, why did the industry start bringing Jake decoys to the market? Well, because biologically the hen is supposed to go to the gobbler. So you'd have a lot of times where, back in the old days, where, and even today, where you can put a hen decoy out there and the gobbler approaches, he sees the hen from 80 yards, you know, 100 yards out or 80 yards out, and he just stops and struts. Because biologically the hen is supposed to go to him if, if she wants to breed. And the only way to get him to finish and come into the setup is if he thinks there's already a gobbler or a jake or a male turkey on scene that now he has to out display he has to you know kick out of there you know assert dominance whatever if you put a jake or a, 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 a tom decoy in this in the mix well now that gobbler needs to come all the way in but that's where we have the discussion of what period of the season are we in because early season when there's a lot of displaying going on, and there's a lot of, of interspecific competition between gobblers for, for buying for hens, okay, a strutter in that mix actually works well. But you get to a point in season, a lot of places, all of a sudden, now gobblers have just been beaten up eight ways from Sunday. They've all established their pecking order. They all have you know, established their areas of, of operation. They may not want to come in on a situation where you have uh, a strutter. So, you know, I talk about the whipping boy setup where I, I put a little of everything out there, but 
What's your What are your thoughts? How do you want to tackle that? Well, uh, I think it's let's break it down. In you talk about early season, mid season, late season. Let's just start with early season. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that in early season, a strutter decoy. If I could only choose one, I'd probably take a, a Dave Smith strutter decoy. I'd put the full tail fan. Agreed. And I put the, you know, the old school strutter, you know, where we'd put the wings on. Now they're making, I just got the new one. It, they make it with the wings already. And they actually painted up my Merriam's and Gould's color. So it's got a little more white on it. Early yeah, season, nice. I'm going to use a strutter decoy. The one thing that I am reluctant to tell people to use a strutter decoy is if you're hunting on public land, I don't recommend it because you could get yourself shot. If you have access to private land, and you only can take one decoy, I would go with a strutter decoy. Like Chris is talking about, they're trying to establish their pecking order. There's a lot of, you know, shenanigans going on early and fighting and, you know, trying to establish who's dominant and who's subordinate and, and what have you. That's where strutter early season, they just come unglued and they come and they want to fight. Agreed. And And Chris agrees with that. So, I if, guess if 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 you're only if you're only going to bring one, right? If if you have the ability to have multiple, then that's where I talk about my whipping boy stuff, where you, you have the strutter in the in you have strutter out there, you have a Jake, and then you've got a couple hens, or or you, again, you don't even have to have hens. In my opinion, I think they they go a long way in helping. Because you're making the sound of hens, and then they see the males, and they assume the hens are there. So you're saying you don't even have to have the hens, but correct me if I'm wrong, early season, you're more likely to have hens, strutter, and jake. In essence, the whole flock out there, much better results early season than, say, late season with the whole flock out there. Correct. And there's times I'll have eight to ten decoys out. Right. You know, I might have... The whole enchilada out there. But but let's talk about your whipping boy setup because I love love the scenario of giving the gobbler a choice. So talk about that. Yeah, so basically I'm going to have – you never know what gobbler you're going to have coming in. So you can have the lovers and you can have the fighters. It's just like anything. Um, And there's some birds that they don't want to – engage a strutter they don't want to engage another tom but quite honestly they they would love the opportunity to, to beat up on a jake or maybe they just want to come in and show off and just just test the waters a little bit so i always will put a, a early 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 season right put a, put a strutter where i think i'm going to take the shot and usually with my clients and just like what you you know we did down in mexico most of the time especially with the ground blind at 10 yards 10 yards in front of the of the ground blind, smack dab. Now, that's with archery. If I've got a shotgun hunter, then a lot of times I'll, I'll just go ahead and put it at 20 because I know the shotgun pattern is probably going to be a little bit better rather than having it so stupidly close. But with an archery, I'll set it up 10 yards. I'll put the, the strutter exactly where I think the best location is for that hunter shooter to take the shot. But, if the gobbler does not want to come into the strutter, I will take and put a Jake decoy, usually five to seven yards back behind it, away further away from the further away from the blind, and then off to the side, left or right of that strutter, where that shooter can also get a shot. So 
if the bird wants to come straight into the strutter, great. I'm going to put him right where I want him. But if he doesn't want to come to the strutter and he wants to come to the jake, I also put him right where I know that the shooter can take a shot. But now, and it's still at a fixed range, so like 15 yards. But I'm going to, and then with the hens, I'm going to spread out my set, and I'm going to have the hens spread out no closer than probably about five to seven steps between each of them. Most of the time I'm doing seven to 10 or 15 steps between the hens. I want space around those decoys because, A, turkeys generally are spaced out a little bit when they're feeding and just milling around. But more importantly, I want that bird, that real gobbler, if he doesn't want to go up to the strutter, if he doesn't want to go up to the jake decoy, but he wants to come in and strut for the hens, he's got room in which he can move in and out of the hens without getting too close to the two male decoys, if that makes sense. Chris, let's pretend that you're a, the, to give people a perspective of, you know, you're basically creating a triangle, but if you're looking at the face of a watch, it sounds like you're having the strutter at 10 o'clock and you're putting the jake at 2 o'clock and you, or excuse me, the hunter is sitting in the center of the watch. And then you're let's, also, let's, go ahead. No, let me, let me change. I see where you're going with your analogy. Let me change it a little bit if I may. Yep. My ground block, the hunter is at six. Six o'clock, okay. At the six on the face, we're looking at the old dial, uh, the old arms on the clock. So the, the, the hunter is sitting on the number six. My strutter decoy would be dead center in the middle of the clock where, the, where, the, where all the hands of the clock come together. He, the strutter is dead center in the middle of the clock. And then depending on if my hunter is left-handed or right-handed, and just that's just kind of how they like to shoulder this gun or draw their bow, I will put my Jake decoy at 10 or 11 o'clock or 1 or 2 o'clock. Does that make sense? I assume 10 or 11 if they're right-handed and 1 or 2 yep. if they're left-handed. And then where will because, you feather the hens yep. out from there? The, the hens will be more like 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, but more towards back towards the blind, not out towards the incoming bird. You want, the, Correct. You want your, your gobbler to be out in, in the middle. You want your jake for a right-handed shooter to be out to the left about 7 to 10 steps. And then you want hens feathered back towards the hunter at 6, 6 o'clock. So that they have the option to skirt not only the jake and the strutter, but skirt around for a right-handed shooter. That gobbler would kind of skirt, not mess with the jake or with the strutter, and come straight over to the hen. Exactly. But it's, it's just it's just deadly. It's just deadly. But wouldn't you say ninety-nine times out of a hundred, the incoming gobbler is going to early season is going to engage either with the strutter or either with the jake and it would be fairly rare to not engage them at all and come to the hens correct yes and that's why i put those two right exactly where i want them to go yep absolutely sometimes sometimes they will run right by the jake and then just beat go straight to the gobbler sometimes they stop and beat up on the that's why i call them the whipping boy Sometimes they'll come smoking in and they'll go straight to the jake because they're like, nah, we're going to kick his butt first and then we're going to come over 
to the strutter. And so depending on the hunt and, and how, you know, I watch everything unfold, just like you do with our hunters. A lot of times I just tell people, just watch the show, let them go ahead and beat up on the, the, the whipping boy, let them beat him up. And then as they settle in and start strutting and maybe working their way to the gobbler, then you shoot them or let them go beat up the gobbler too. And then when they're all done, then you shoot them. You know, that's the beautiful thing about these ultra real decoys these days. I did finally buy the, the Dave Smith. Uh, I got the, the, uh, the Jake strutter. Uh, I just like the idea of having it just a small, small and body. I like what Dave Smith. Yeah. I like what Dave Smith did is, is they didn't make it. So Primo's, I've used the killer bee for years at, because I like the, I like on that because the tail moves. It's on a spring loaded little deal. I, I love that from a wind standpoint. I talk about that in the other videos, but, um, I do like the fact that Dave Smith made their Jake strutter only about 20% smaller than their biggest. So it's not a giant decoy, but yet it's not stupidly fake small. You know what I mean? It's, it's a good size. Uh, it's easier to handle. It's, it's a perfect to, ass know, kicker. <laughs> it, 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 it's exactly it because a, a real gobbler comes in. And, and again, behavior is key. Body size matters when you are in a conflict. The bigger the per- bigger the guy you are, the more likely you're probably going to beat up on a smaller opponent. And in the in the world of animal conflict, body size matters. So, when a real gobbler comes in there, even though he may have gotten his butt whooped a time or two, and he's a subordinate technically within the real flock, he might be a subordinate Tom. He comes in and sees a bird that's twenty percent smaller than him, or, or at least smaller. That just gives him the confidence to be like, okay, all right, I can take this guy. So yeah, I and I did like the fact that you know you can you can put a broadhead in the middle of a Dave Smith. <laughs> <laughs> it just cuts through the arrow and just keeps going. Keep on ticking. Okay, so that's uh-huh. your early season, your whipping boy setup, um, and then do you let do you let an encounter? dictate that all of a sudden okay now you're mid-season and you're going to do a different scenario or do you just know that okay i'm you know i know right about now is when we're going to taper or we're going to change the full flock setup with the whipping boy setup and then what do you go to from there yeah i'll I'll let the birds dictate it because i mean different flocks in different areas even on our different properties can be different so it, it it if you spend a lot of time hunting through the season, you'll be able to see this yourself. So I use the birds to tell me when I need to pull that strutter. And typically that's what I do is I pull the strutter first. A lot of times what you'll see is all of a sudden those birds will want to come in, but then they just drip. They, they just hang out. They just they hang towards the backside of the decoys. Or they stay out there 50, 60 yards, and they strut, and they gobble, strut, and gobble, strut, and gobble, and then they just kind of fold up their wings, and they're like, oh, well, oh, well, I guess that guy's already got those hands. I'm just going to keep moving on, and I'll go find somebody else because they don't want to fight anymore. If I see that, that's when I'm like, okay, yanking the strutter. And, and sometimes I'll do that while I'm hunting. So in the morning, we'll have the setup, just get the strutter out there. The birds just show a tendency not to want to come into the spread. If they wander off, but I'm in a spot where I know they're going to loaf for the bulk of the day. I'll just sneak out of the out of the blind, or I'll sneak out of our set, go over, grab the strutter, yank him out, put him in his in his case, tuck him away, get back in the blind, and just sit and call and see if I can get them to circle back and look. Sometimes just yanking that strutter out 
is what they, they're like, oh, okay, well, now I don't have to worry about that spike. Maybe I'll come in. I let the birds tell me that. But generally speaking, by the time you're in that somewhere in that second week of season, that's kind of when I start look. And I say season because most states time their hunting seasons to co- coexist with how the birds are cycling behaviorally in their reproductive cycle. So in general, most states start their seasons when turkeys are busting up out of the winter flocks, when they're starting to show off, when they start, you know, the gobblers are showing interest of hens and the hens are starting showing interest with gobblers. And so by that behavioral cycle, about two weeks into most seasons is when I see that, okay, we might start needing to go ahead and removing this strutter out of here and just putting a Jake out there. And then from there, I'll just keep, again, I just keep going from that point on and watching the behavior of the toms. Once it starts getting looking like where the toms are just looking for those lone hens or just hens by themselves, I'll yank the strutter. I'll, I mean, excuse me, I'll yank the Jake out of it altogether and just run a couple of hens. And typically I'll run a couple of hens only because if my opinion, and this has been my experience, if I just run a single hen, and I still do from time to time. If I just run a single hen, I get gobblers that want to hang up. But if I have like a like an upright hen or a semi-upright hen and then maybe a, a couple feeding hens off to the side, it seems as though I don't get as many hang-ups because I, and this is just nothing but conjecture on my part. But behaviorally, it would make sense that there's a couple hens hanging together that maybe that one hen doesn't want to leave the other two hens there. And so they're just kind of loosely aggregated to there to where it encourages the bird to come a little bit closer. But if I'm getting late season, I'm having those hens spread out pretty good. I'm not having them all clustered per se, but um, I just let the birds dictate what I do with my decoy spread. But in general, as the season progresses, I'm removing toms out of my spread. Chris, I want to talk about, um, you touched on something. I want to be clear. When, And it goes back to the original setup when you're using the strutter, the whipping boy. Which direction do you face the strutter's <laughs> head or which direction do you face the strutter's butt, if you will, in that setup? I always I always will point it at an angle towards the gobbler, the incoming gobbler. I behaviorally, yes, you can watch birds come just charging in and go face to face and kick the snot out of each other if you're dealing with birds that are very aggressive. But the vast majority of time and there's just way too many encounters and way too much video for me in, in the areas that I hunt, the birds that I hunt with whether it be Merriam's or whether it be Rio's and, and case in point, we, we, you know, let me segue real quick. Cause I just found it. Um, we talk a lot and we probably still will talk about a lot of Merriam's and mountain stuff. And from a decoy setup, this, this is perfect. So if people go to the YouTube channel and I know you've got a bunch, a bunch of videos on your YouTube channel too, that they can see this in a lot of times, if you will point the tail in the direction, uh, not like you don't have to point it straight at them, but like at an angle. If you give that incoming bird the opportunity to sneak in from behind the tail fan of the strutter, man, they will take it. And I've got, and 
perfect example of this. I mean, like, as in beautiful example. On my YouTube channel, it's big, New Mexico, Merriam's Turkey, episode three at the turkey hunt. You can see this exact situation of the decoy setup and watching that bird come right up the back end of the tail feathers of that decoy. I always will point, if I can, if it's not windy, you know, sometimes it's windy, the wind is going to just turn your decoy however it's going to be. But if I can point that tail fan towards that incoming bird or where I think the birds are going to come from, I always do it. Okay, and so I always try and point, well, I've always, that's what I've always done is I've always tried to point the, the head at the hunter and I've tried to put, well, the most important thing for me was having the ability of a gobbler, let's say at 12 o'clock, to be able to come into a spread where he thinks he can't be seen and sneaks right up the backside and literally comes in real aggressive and and then you know closes the gap. I've seen where the gobbler, the decoy is facing the bird and it gets them to stay out there and they strut. And so now they're kind of the, the strutter and the tom are looking at each other they have a standoff if that tail fan is facing more towards the hunter or the caller or excuse me the, the head and the tail or the butt is facing at the direction the bird is coming from um you still there yeah go ahead my, my batteries i didn't realize i didn't have my phone plugged in and my battery time so i'm scrambling to go get a, a charger keep going okay um i've found that that works like a charm and they'll usually even in sight if they break out of the tree line and they can see from 40 or 50 yards they'll close that 40 or 50 yards because they think that the gobbler the decoy can't see them because he's in full strut with his fan his butt facing the incoming bird with that being said um chris has actually taught me a lot about decoy positioning and maybe chris just hit the mute on your phone um Chris has taught me a lot about decoy positioning, and one thing that my situation where I point the butt at the incoming bird, what that creates is that bird has to come all the way around because a lot of times they'll come and they'll end up being nose to nose. Well, for a shotgun hunter, that's not as ideal to have now my, my decoy and the gobbler, now the gobbler's butt that we're trying to shoot might be fanned out pointing at me or pointing at the hunter, assuming that I'm kind of behind the hunter calling. So Chris's idea of turning that gobbler at a little bit, say a 45, what that does is it allows that gobbler to swing around and come face to face, but now he's basically at a 45 degree angle to the hunter which still gives him with a shotgun a headshot whereas in my scenario unless he's all slicked down if he's fanned out now I'm looking at the gobbler's butt and the backside of his fan as a hunter and have to wait for him to turn well whereas in Chris's scenario when he's at a 45 there's pretty much a shot opportunity the whole time, even if he's in full strut. We don't like to shoot him in full strut, but even if he is, you still always have the beat of the shotgun on him, and you've always, you know, you've got that bird where he can be killed, where in my scenario, he could be face-to-face -face with my strutter decoy with his fan 
in my face as a hunter or in my hunter's face and no shot opportunity. Now with a bow, you have the opportunity to take that great shot where all the tail, you know, the primary tail feathers meet in the tail fan. So that's a good scenario. Um, and Chris, you back, I'm just curious your thoughts on on that exact, the exact turn of the strutter decoy. If you have anything to add there. No, I mean, you, you know, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, like I said, all of a sudden my phone chimed and I had like 10% battery. I'm like, oh, no, and then I looked at it and I didn't have my charger in the, in the, the studio here. I'm like, oh, crap. Um, so, no, you, you, you nailed it. I, I, that's the thing. Is every hunter is going to be different. And so there's some people that are experienced, very experienced turkey hunters that, um, that want to let the birds just come into the decoy spread and, and, and just have fun and, and, be specific versus just beginners, but it doesn't matter if, if you understand behavior. If you, I think you, everything you said is absolutely on the money. If you allow the bird to come in from behind that fan, it allows the actual gobbler to believe he's got the upper hand, and it allows that bird to come in, engage, and I think it doesn't matter if you have a bow or a shotgun or muzzle, it doesn't matter. The way the bird will, if he sometimes they'll just come in and just kick the snot out of it, and and then if that's the case, that bird's just shucking and jiving and moving and everything else. Most of the time, they kind of drop strut. Their head is poked up. They're they're purring, you know, aggressive purrs. If you're a shotgun, their head is extended up above the decoy. It might you just gonna might wait for them to just pause for two seconds so you can blow their head off. If they're going to be aggressive, you're going to, they're going to be aggressive. You just got to wait. You can draw your bow. You can move your shotgun, whatever. You just got to wait for them to stand still long enough for you to get a good, clean shot. But if they come in and they just want to strut around him and push up against him, which they always, not always, oftentimes will, they'll just kind of, they just slow down and they move slow. And now they just slowly work their way around that bird to where you've got so much more time at a headshot, you've got so much more time to pick your archery shot a little bit better. It just allows you to control how that bird comes into your setup uh, a little bit better, and it just gives you a lot more shot opportunities, I think. Yeah, and I also want to talk about uh, hen placement. I tend to have my hens facing the opposite direction of where I think the the turkeys or the gobbler is going to come from. The reason I like that is I want as many of my decoys facing me so that an incoming turkey sees a path of direction and knows that those birds are looking towards me and oftentimes pretty close to me. And if they're all, if my decoys are looking in my direction, the incoming bird knows that they have that direction covered visually and they'll tend to come in a little more aggressively because they, one, are kind of slipping in the back door, but two, they know that if there was a problem in front of these birds, they would actually be turning around and facing back the other direction. Just curious your thoughts on the direction of the remaining hen decoys, if you put any preference to that. Um, but that's something I've always tried to do is get the hens facing the hunter 
because and it may not make a big difference, but I feel like an incoming bird is going to realize that, hey, everything's cool. Those feeding hen decoys heads are down. The one uh, hen with her head up is looking in the direction and she's not showing any posture of, you know, there's a problem. And they come in, uh, uh, you know, hotter, if you will. I like it, and, and I take it even one step further. Now, if I'm in, a, if I'm set up in a spot where I know the birds usually kind of linger and hang out for a while, I might just have their their uh, head directions just kind of more scattered. But I I agree with you because I just remember when I was just talking about having late season just having hens and having a couple feeders. You know, I have one like maybe upright, and then a couple feeders. I will have the feeders pointing in a singular direction away from where I think the bird is coming from. And I wasn't even thinking about it from a standpoint of safety. I was thinking of it from a standpoint of, I want that other turkey to believe that those hens already have a direction in mind. And it's not in the direction of that gobbler. They're moving away from him. Oh, I love they're that. Pointing. I love that. So he, he it's gonna, he's going to look up, see it, and be like, oh, they're going the other way. i got to get around them. Yes, I've got to catch up. They're, they're, they're feeding. They're moving in this direction. So, you know, let's just say left and right. So me, the hunter, is facing forward. The, the gobbler is off to my left. And I know I need to put my decoys out. If I know that I'm just on the edge of a field, and the general feeding area is off to my right, I might take all of my hands and point them facing to my right, and I'll actually have them set up off to my right a little bit. So that way they're already moving to my right. Gobbler comes around the creek bend. He sees that setup. Now, if I have a Jake or a strutter, it's going to be in, in front of me, but that Jake or strutter is going to be behind those hands, Regardless if I have a Jager strutter in the setup, anyway, I'm having the hens pointed in the direction that is away from the gobbler. He's realizing that they're already headed somewhere. It's better, it's probably in his best interest, just to catch up with that group rather than stopping gobbling and trying to turn that group around and have them come back the other way. They're already headed somewhere. He's got to catch up. And then, Chris, as late season comes, you talk about definitely pulling the strutter. You talk about going to sometimes just hen setups. Um, talk about that a little bit. That usually, in my mind, is typically a, a scenario where you, you get late season and, and most of the breeding is done. Uh, turkeys are just worn out. The gobblers are just worn out. They've been in how many fights? They're probably injured. They've lost a bunch of their body condition just because they're not eating as much and they're just they're just going full on all out all season long. So you may be in a month of season. Those gobblers are tired. They're, they're just tired. Yeah, do they want ladies? Yes, they do. But do they want conflict? Hell, freaking no. And so if, and at that time, if you end up sitting in a situation where you have a hen, all of a sudden she's out there calling by by the time we start rolling into, quote-unquote, our later part of the season, that generally coincides, again, the way the states set up their hunting season, generally that coincides when those hens are starting to go off and lay it, you know, set on nests. Well, 
if all of a sudden late season, here's a hen out there and she's calling, oftentimes that can mean that maybe that hen lost her nest. And so she might be off on her own, or maybe it's a hen or two off on her own or three. Um, they're not looking for a gobbler. They're not looking for a jake. They're not looking for, they're just looking for an easy hen that wants some company. And so that's why I'll just pull that and just have one or two or three hens um, when I'm running late season. Yeah. Um, would there ever be a situation where you would, in the late season, run just a Jake decoy? In in the thought of, you know, like kind of bachelorine up, or would that never – that would never strike you to do that. You'd you'd run a single hand you know, before you run a single Jake. You know, I, it's it's worth playing. You know, what I mean, I I can't. You never say never because I'm even thinking about a situation now where I broke that rule and I actually took a strutter out during the late season because there was two gobblers that were running this particular part of the river bottom, and I mean, they just absolutely beat the ever living tar out of any other gobbler that ever even thought about stepping foot in their chunk of the real estate. And so late season, I was like, Oh, I, I mean, there was, there were no, all the hens were off. I mean, these two birds were just out there every day, all every day, all by themselves. They didn't have any hens. They were just out there strutting or just cruising the river bottom all by themselves. But every time a new Jake stepped foot in there, passing that they would just run him ragged. So I'm like, fine, I'm going to come out there with my Jake strutter. And, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was just, it was like having an opening day again. They just about pulled him over. So there's always going to be those times where you just got to get creative and play. So you absolutely could. You absolutely could have a situation like that or, or you just you play with a Jake, you play with a strutter late. It, you just got to see what your birds are doing and, and how they respond to it. That's the other reason why I do tell people, just slowly, just slowly start to accumulate decoys over time, um, because it's just it's nice to have a full toolbox. And sometimes I'll have them all in the truck, or I might even have them in the ground blind, and I'm fixing and matching, I'm pulling, and I'm putting. I'm just playing with the spread as I'm hunting to figure out, okay, what do these guys want? So, I, yeah, go for it. And I would say too, I mean, guys that are hunting private land, if you're noticing that there's a dominant bird or two in different parts of your property. And I mean, you are witnessing this bird literally chasing other birds off and he will not let them buy the hens. And he's just super, super dominant. I mean, a hundred percent. That's when I would absolutely get the real tail fan out, get the, get the strutter out. And, and yeah. that, that bird will go, you can kill dominant birds with strutters because they absolutely like Chris said, and that's one of the things I have the um, smaller uh, Jake strutter from DSD as well. And, you know, having that little bit body, smaller body size, pretty much any gobbler that's showing that they like to fight and they like that dominance, you put that smaller bodied decoy there, they're just going to come pummel it. Um, let's also talk while we're talking about decoys in more of a run and gun situation, not a blind situation, possibly you know, uh, a Merriam's mountain type hunt situation. I'm a lot of times going to carry a Jake, a DSD Jake, and I'm going to carry a DSD either upright or, or feeding hen. I'm going to carry two decoys. If, 
if I'm on the move and I know that I'm going to be covering country, uh, whether I'm by myself or with someone else, um, you know, normally I'll carry two decoys myself. Uh, they come with the, the DSDs come with the, you know, the bag with the nice strap on it. And so I'll usually carry a Jake and a hen. And if I'm hunting with someone else, normally I'll have them carry probably two other hens, uh, in a, in a normal run and gun situation. Um, Chris, any, any changes to that? Nope. That's yeah, exactly. Or, or sometimes I'll just, again, I'll just have the Jake because I can at least set up where I can pretend the hen is somewhere where the incoming bird might not see. So yeah, go minimal. That's And, and that is why I used to like it, it. And don't get me wrong. I still love my avian X. And that's one thing that avian X has is uh, on the, the collapsible ones. The blow-up ones is you can literally collapse them and have them in the back of your vest. They're heavy, but you can have them in the back of your vest, and they're pretty quiet, and you can deploy them when you need to or just stow them if you don't want to. But, yeah, a lot of times I'll just take one or two decoys. Sometimes it's just Jake. One thing we didn't talk about is the submissive hen that Dave Smith makes. And I just posted on Facebook a while back uh, a video where you had uh, Jonathan, an archery hunter, and you masterfully placed that submissive hen at a 90-degree angle, so at a perpendicular angle to the hunter. In other words, the, the submissive hen is longer left to right, if that makes sense, and you position it not the tail pointing at the hunter, not the head pointing at the hunter, but you put it in a perpendicular position so that if an incoming gobbler were to come in from behind the submissive hen, which they always do, they come in from behind and they approach and they jump up on, for an archer and or a shotgun hunter, always place those submissive hens at a true um, 90 degree angle because it gives a perfect perpendicular headshot and or for archers a body shot if you're going to body shot but if you're head or neck shooting with archery it gives you that perfect side just perfect shot and it gives you also um, a lot of opportunity to you know have because they're going to get on it and they're going to spend some time you know clawing and it, it you're you're basically your shot pattern you're in the money the whole time with that chris anything to add yeah no it's that's exactly it and the other the only the only thing that i'll add is people need to realize too is when when you have a gobbler coming in they're because that the whole point behind that submissive head is that to indicate a body position that that hen is ready to breed she wants that gobbler to breed in order for him to do so, he's got to climb up on her back. In order for him to do so, a lot of times they will come in from behind her. And when they do, oftentimes they just slow down. And they just start coming in gingerly. They get closer and closer and then start to test and start to step up. And they'll start. Just remember, if that bird is committed and he's buying this deal, and he's approaching her back end, and he's testing on getting up on top of her, he's not going anywhere. Unless someone comes in and busts the, the, the setup, a bobcat comes in or something, that bird is going nowhere for many minutes. 
So just take your time, slow down, let the bird settle. And I mean that, especially for those people that are archery hunting like this particular, yeah, that, that, that hump is fun. Um, if you're just, if you're archery hunting with your butt against a tree and you're out in the open, okay, you're, the movement of you drawing that bow is going to be significant. So you have to make sure that that bird is either his head is blocked or he's so distracted he's not paying attention to anything. When you have the submissive hen on the ground like that and you give him time to start to climb up on her back, that bird is locked in and you can literally move your shotgun. You can literally draw your bow back. And most of the time, they aren't even going to react. If he does react, he's going to pick his head up and be like, what was that? Uh, and then you just, and smack him in the head. Smack them in the head because a lot of times when they do get up on the back of that hen, they're not going to be in a full strut position. They're going to be kind of in this modified, squirrely position. You can see it in the video. Jay, I know you've got several of these videos because I filmed them, and they're on your web, They're on your uh, YouTube channel. You can watch that bird get up on top of that back of that, that hen decoy, and you'll watch how his head kind of just creeps out a little bit. His, his feathers kind of relax around his neck. And his head is poked out a little bit to where you've got a perfect wide open head and neck shot for anybody that wants to, to lop their head off with a, with a broad head or if you want to just smoke them with a shotgun. But just understand, that bird's not going anywhere. Do not feel like you're rushed. Just let him settle and just take your time and smack him. All right, let's go ahead and kill this one for right now. Like I said, this is part of a much longer conversation. So part two of this series is literally going to just pick up right where this one leaves off. But in this conversation, this was a really good break point. So that's why I figured I would kill it here. Uh, but as always, thank you guys very much for following along. And, and I appreciate everyone's encouragement and comments and the feedback that I've gotten lately over these past several weeks. Uh, regarding folks saying that they want me to start doing more of my own podcast. Um, trust me, I, I've heard you and, and I greatly appreciate all that feedback coming back. And so I just I just have to make the time to sit my butt in front of a, uh, the computer here in the studio and just, just start getting stuff done. Hopefully, um, not not hopefully, I just, I just need to do it. I just need to do it. I've got time over these next several weeks and, and as we move into summer, so I just have to make the time and, and I commit to you guys and gals that I will do that. Um, just keep giving me the feedback. Let me know if you like it, what you want differently, or what you want done differently, if, you, if anything. And seriously, if folks want video podcast let me know because i have the ability to do either one and there are some topics that will just lend themselves to video and i will do a video podcast episode but do people appreciate a video based podcast as well or would you watch them if it if it's just a discussion like this um if so then let me know and if there's a good enough percentage of you folks out there that want that then heck yeah i can start doing video stuff but if a bunch of you don't watch it if like the vast majority of you don't watch videos, you just want to listen to the audio version, then I'm not going to waste my time on doing video stuff that you guys aren't going to watch anyway. So anyway, give me that feedback. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you want. 
and I'll start cranking stuff out, and especially on topics. If you have questions, if you have topics you want me to cover, um, folks you want me to talk to, let me know. I've got ideas of my own that we'll start diving into, but, you know, Jay and I were talking about the fact that, you know, we get going down our roads and, and kind of the pigeonholes and, and the little rabbit trails and stuff that we that we enjoy going down, and I know some of you enjoy hearing that as well, but we can sometimes completely forget that you guys may want a discussion on maybe a, a parallel discussion or a, a, just a little offshoot of a discussion or something. If you, if you're if you listen to us talking, it doesn't matter if it's just me and Jay, if it's me and you know Aaron on Kafarocast, or if it's me and anybody, it doesn't matter. If you hear me talking or somebody talking and you're and you're curious about more information on that and you'd like me to cover and jump in on the topic, let me know. Because I might not be thinking of things that you guys are thinking of, and maybe I want to go in directions you're not interested in. So, I don't know. We're just going to feel this out and see where it goes and see what you guys want. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for following along on this. And as always, uh, until somebody wants to start throwing large chunks of money at me and for sponsorships and advertising, uh, I work for you. I, w- I work for our Row Hunting Resources subscribers, our members. That 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 is... That's our family, and, and that is who has supported me from the beginning. And I cannot thank you folks strongly enough for allowing me to do this as a job, part of my job. Um, so, yeah, if you are not a subscriber and you like this sort of content and discussion, I would humbly ask you consider subscribing. I mean, there's other ways that you can support this podcast and, and row hunting resources, but the easiest way is become a subscriber. If Especially if you're a new turkey hunter and you're listening to this stuff and, and you're getting benefit out of it, by all means, jump on the rowhuntingresources.com website, click on subscribe under the turkey module, and just have at. There's a bunch of good content in there, especially geared towards those that are just starting out turkey hunting. It'll absolutely shorten your learning curve on what to do out in the field and how to be more effective and efficient in your hunting efforts and hopefully ultimately ultimately, uh, more successful. And if you're an elk hunter as well, goodness gracious, just, okay, I I know this is going to sound self-serving and it it is, okay, it is, but goodness gracious, just sign up for the full access subscription. On the elk module alone, the Elk Hunting Institute, it, there, there's over, I think there's over 50 hours worth of in-depth discussion like this regarding elk behavior, elk biology, elk vocalizations, communication, strategy, tactics. It, it, there's all sorts of stuff in there and it's all video-based. All right, So the, the vast majority of it is video-based. So there's a ton of information housed inside of rowhuntingresources.com I absolutely appreciate all of our subscribers and all of our members over the years and and those, especially the new ones that have just recently signed up because of the recent podcasts I've done elsewhere. Again, thank you very, very much for that. And um, yeah, we're just going to keep cranking and I'm going to keep putting out content. As long as you keep consuming it, I will do my best to keep supplying it. So anyway, all right, I'm going to sign off. Up next is the part two of this discussion that's going to pick up right where this one left off. Thanks, everybody.